You're listening to the sermon series, The Songs of Jesus, at Sojourn East. In this series, we'll see the power of singing the stories of Jesus. We'll see how these songs are rooted in the promises of God, speak to our deepest longings, and equip us to bring all we are to Him. Today's scripture is from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 29. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the joy, the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, on August 20th, 1977, um, not many of us were alive then, some of us were, uh, But on August 20th, 1977, NASA launched the Voyager 2 probe uh, into outer space with the goal of better understanding our solar system. And I'm kind of uh, fascinated by space, fascinated by NASA, and so I did a little research into this. And so this probe was launched, and it, it travels at close to a million miles a day. And so within two years... Voyager 2 reached Jupiter. Two years later, it reached Saturn. And by 1989, it had reached Neptune, you know, the far reaches of our solar system, and it showed no signs of slowing down. And since 1989, hitting Neptune, it's continued to go out, and it still sends data and information back to NASA. Well, last November, the Voyager 2 actually reached the very edge of our solar system and began to leave our solar system, which that's very, very far from here. It's hard to describe how far. And so that that happened a year ago, but this past November, NASA finally released what they found, what they discovered at the edge of our solar system. I don't know if any of you saw this news. It was in the national news this past month. But at the very edge of our solar system is this fiery radioactive wall of plasma that burns at roughly 90 million degrees Fahrenheit, which is crazy, and no one expected that to be there. But just as the Earth has an atmosphere, so our solar system 
It has this spherical atmosphere, and it's actually really good news because what they also found is outside of our solar system, the radio it's it's much the radioactivity is much higher and much greater than it is inside the system, and that fiery wall actually serves to protect us from really really toxic space radiation. And so, all in all, it's really good news that it's there, um, and we should celebrate that we have this wall that's protecting us. But as I was reading about these discoveries, I was on some science forums and some space forums. It was interesting how many armchair astronomers and scientists lamented this discovery. They said, this is a brutal setback for any hopes we have of interstellar travel. Not only do we have to figure out how to pass through a wall of fire that's burning at 90 million degrees Fahrenheit, but we also have to figure out how to navigate all of that radiation, which is higher than anything we know on this Earth. And reading it, and it was interesting to read how many people said, but we have to press on because humanity's survival hangs in the balance. And so for me, reading that, and reading that preparing not just for this series, but for this season of Advent, it was really, really interesting. Because our hope, the world's hope, is we're going to leave this earth before it freezes over or burns up. But our hope, the hope we've been given and the hope that we celebrate at Advent is that we don't have to figure out how to escape this world before it implodes. But rather, Jesus has promised that he will come to us and he will redeem this world and he will make it new and he will heal us, he'll heal the world, and he will heal our relationship with God. And so as Christians, we don't live, live saying, how do we get out? We live saying, Lord, come. Lord, we long for you to come again. And Advent is about how do we wait? How do we wait for his second coming? And so we're in this series looking at different Christmas carols and Advent hymns that help give language and understanding to this season of Advent because it's not something that most of us grew up thinking about or learning about. And the song we chose for this week is the song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It was written in 19, or sorry, in 1744 by the great hymn writer Charles Wesley. And it's not typically viewed as a Christmas carol because nothing in the song talks about mangers or the birth of Christ. And while Wesley didn't write it as a Christmas carol, he did write it as an Advent hymn. And what I mean is he wrote this song, Longing, Come Thou Long, Expected Jesus, Longing for Jesus' Return. What inspired the writing of the song is Wesley, as he, he looked around Britain and saw the, the horrible plight of orphans across the country and the class divide. His heart broke, and it led him to say, Jesus, come, come, and, and, and make it so there are no more orphans. Come and make it so there are no more people who are struggling to put bread on the table for their families. Come and heal our world. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. This song, like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it's a song about longing and desire, but it's also about that day of waiting waiting for the day when the world is healed and when God makes his dwelling among us. And as great as that day will be, it still feels very, very far off. And waiting on that is very hard. 
oftentimes if you just look at the news and you look at what's going on around us, it feels like the darkness is winning. And we know it's not, but it can feel like that sometimes when the wait is long. And so the question that, that I want to answer today through Romans 8, I think that's what Romans 8 is answering for us, is how do we wait and what does waiting well look like? In this season of Advent, what does it mean for us as Christians to wait on the Lord's return? In Romans 8, I think it's probably the greatest, what Paul writes here, it's probably the greatest treatment on waiting in the entire New Testament. And there are three things that I want to show you from this text, three, three aspects of waiting I want to hold before you. Number one, waiting means we learn how to groan and hope. Number two, waiting means we know how to, to trust God's purpose and his process for us in the waiting. And then number three, waiting well means that we know how to rest in God's keeping. So we groan in hope, we trust the purpose and the process, and we rest in his keeping. But starting with groaning and hope, <laughs> I don't know if you picked up on it, but there's a lot of groaning in this passage. Verse 22, creation groans. Verse 23, we groan. Verse 26, the Holy Spirit of God intercedes with groans too deep for words. There's a lot of groaning in this text. And so I've actually thought about this concept of groaning a lot more this week than I have probably in the rest of my life combined. I mean, think of, think of groaning. What is a groan? When we groan, a groan is a protest. If we groan in anger or pain or frustration, that groan is a protest against what is happening. It's a protest of the status quo. It's saying the status quo is wrong. That's what Paul is telling us here in Romans 8, that creation groans because the world is not as it should be. Verse 21 Paul tells us that all of creation is in bondage to corruption. It's in slavery to decay. And this is a truth that we all know too well, even if we don't want to think about it. And that's that given enough time, everything that we love and everyone that we love will eventually fall apart, will decay, and will die. And Paul tells us that not just we feel this way, but creation Creation feels the slavery to decay where things aren't working as God designed them to work. And creation groans. All of creation is in slavery to this decay. And this groaning, it's metaphorical, it's personifying nature. But I think it's also literal. If you've ever heard the howling of wolves or the howling of wind, the roar of the ocean, shifting of tectonic plates, like, I see all of that. I have a good imagination, but I see all of that as creation just longing, anxiously waiting to be set free from the slavery. Creation groans, we groan too. We groan that life is so hard so often. We groan that our relationships are filled with so much conflict. We groan when disease steals away our health. We groan when death steals away those we love. We groan that the things that we want to do, we so often don't do. And that the things that we do, we don't want to do. We all know what it means to groan. 
And part of waiting well for Jesus' return, I would argue, is to know how to groan and know how to groan well. You know, there's, there's some versions of Christianity that kind of want to only see the sunny side. I had a friend right out of college, and no matter what anyone was going through, he would say, why are you sad? Jesus rose from the dead. And I get what he's saying, but I think what he's implying there, and I think what's implied in that sunny side up Christianity where everything's sunny, what's implied is that the more spiritually mature you become, the less groaning you'll do, the less tears that you will shed. And I would say that's just simply not true. Now, the longest book of the Bible is the Psalms. There's 150 songs in the Psalms, and the overwhelming majority of them, you know what they are? They're groans. They're protests. Our Lord himself, when he stood outside the grave of his dear friend Lazarus, he was deeply troubled and moved in spirit, and he groaned as he cried out in a loud voice. You see, we groan, we lament, we protest that this is not the way things are supposed to be. And I would argue that the more spiritually in touch you are, the more tears you will shed, not less. The more anger and frustration you will feel with sin, injustice, oppression, disease, death itself, the more spiritually in touch you are, the more groaning you will do in the protest of the way things currently are. It's part of what it means to be honest. And I would say groaning, it, it, it can be an act of very deep devotion when our groaning is done in honesty, but also done with hope. And we have to hold those two things together. Because Paul tells us that creation is groaning in the text. But he doesn't say creation is groaning in the agony of a dying man who's dying a horrible death. Paul tells us, verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. now there are a lot of pains involved in having a child in pregnancy and in delivery. There's nausea, there's vomiting, there's insomnia, there's back pains, there's all sorts of aches, and that's just in the pregnancy. And then you have the delivery. Everything I know about pregnancy and delivery, it's not particularly enjoyable. It's not something that any woman would voluntarily want to go through in and of itself, that process. And yet, you think about the agony and the pain of childbirth, and yet when we hear a friend is pregnant, we throw a party for them in celebration. And little girls grow up dreaming about having babies. Why? It's not the pain, it's not the agony, it's not the groaning. It's the hope of a new and beautiful life. And that hope of a new and beautiful life, that actually overshadows and relativizes all of the pain, all of the aches, all of the groaning. And this is what Paul, he's getting at in this text. That we groan with honesty, but we groan with the hope that relativizes the pain. He says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing 
They're not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I, I just want to hit pause there because Paul, he didn't have an easy life. Paul had a really, really hard life. And when he says, I consider that our present sufferings, he's not saying this is someone who hasn't gone through really, really intense suffering. He's a man who's gone through the worst forms of suffering. And yet he says, you know what? Everything I've gone through, it's not even worth comparing. And then he says in verse 19 that creation waits with eager longing for this hope, for the revealing of the sons of God. And the imagery Paul uses here envisions all of creation kind of on tiptoes, scanning the horizon, eagerly waiting for the day of redemption. And I would say that's the kind of hope that we should be filled with in the midst of our groaning. Paul says, verse 22, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. So part of waiting well, it's learning how to groan in honesty and in hope. And to hold both of those together at the same time. John Stott, he put it so well when he said that we are, as Christians, we are in the current state of affairs, half-saved people. We've been forgiven. We've been welcomed into God's family. We've received the first fruits of the spirits. We've been adopted by God in an irrevocable way. We're saved, and that, that part is it's secure in God's keeping. But we also, we all long for our adoption to be finalized. We long for the redemption of our bodies. And in this half-saved state, we groan with honesty about the anguish of living in a fallen world, but we also groan with hope about the promises that we've received. You know, truth, honesty, it's one of our core values as a church. And the reason why is I believe that all real growth and all real faith is impossible if you're not honest. And I think that oftentimes in the church, we encourage a lot of dishonesty and play acting, which was the very thing that Jesus came after in his earthly ministry. And so I care a ton that we be a church that values honesty. And I hear from you. You come and you say, we love this church. We've never been to a church that's so honest. And I love that. It's so encouraging, and I never want to lose that. But at the same time, I don't want our honesty about the struggles of life in this fallen world to ever overshadow or crowd out the hope that we've been given. I want us to be honest but I also don't want to let the hope, because Paul says it's not even worth comparing all of this stuff to the hope that we've been given. I never wanted to, to push it out. And what I found is when we lose hope, if we lose our grip on hope, our groaning, it quickly turns to grumbling. You know, our... Our longing, it quickly turns to cynicism. And we see this throughout the history of God's people, Old Testament and New. 
that God gives them these great promises, and he says, wait. And so they wait for a while, and then they lose sight of the hope. They lose their grip on the hope God's given them. And what do they do? They just start to complain, and they start to grumble. I think it makes their present sufferings, grumbling makes their present sufferings worse than better, and it steals us of, of hope. It robs us of the hope we have. Paul says, cultivate hope. Grown, but grown in hope. Now, he says the hope that we have, it's a hope that we don't see, because if you see it, then what is a hope? And I think that's a really important word for us, because what Paul is saying is hope's not just going to come naturally to us. It's not a disposition. Hope is something that has to be cultivated. And if all we do is look at the world around us, if all we do is look at social media or watch cable news, televisions, or you name if all we do is look at the world around us, and all we ingest and all we intake is what the world says, there's not a lot of hope there. There's not a lot of promise. There's a lot of darkness, a lot of anger, and a lot of frustration. For us to be a people who groan with hope and who cultivate hope, we've got to know God's promises. We can't leave them on the shelf where I think they are for so many of us. That God has made these precious promises that are meant to comfort us in times of trial. And we have them, we own them, but they're on the shelf and they're gathering dust. Groaning in hope means we pull them off the shelf and we cling to them as we wait for this day of Christ's return with patience. So number one is we groan in hope. Number two is we trust God's purpose and his process as we wait. Verse 28, it's probably one of the most well-known and well-loved verses in the entire Bible where Paul says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And that's a great verse. But something I never really noticed until this week is, I never really thought about is the context in which Paul gave this verse. This Romans isn't like Proverbs where it's just a collection of sayings and thoughts. Paul's actually making one long logical argument that can be hard to follow, but he has a point he's making. And he gives this promise that all things work together for our good right after telling us that we're groaning in hope as we wait for the Lord's return. For him, our waiting and our trusting that God not only is in control, but he's actually orchestrating all things for our good, they go together. He goes out of his way to say everything, even the really hard things, even the really painful things, even the things that have no intrinsic good in and of themselves that happen to us as we wait for Christ's return, even those things God is masterfully orchestrating together for our good. Now, he doesn't leave this concept of good undefined. He goes on. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then he explains what he just said. He says, for those whom he, that's God foreknew, he also predestined. Now, those two words in and of themselves can cause a lot of people to get confused and kind of check out or get distracted. We'll talk about that some other time. Let's just keep going, because that's not Paul's point. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
there's a purpose that God is achieving in us while we wait for Christ's return. I think one of the reasons we tend to struggle as a people to wait is when we feel like our waiting is meaningless. Like you have a doctor's appointment at 11, you show up at 11 and you have to wait for 45 minutes. You feel like it's a waste. I could have been doing something else. You have stolen this time from me and I will never get it back. And I think in the same way, when we think of waiting on Christ's returns, it might be tempting to think, well, we're waiting, but our waiting has no purpose. We're just kind of sitting around like this earth is a waiting room, and we are just waiting and waiting and waiting, and Jesus, like the doctor, is taking his sweet time, and maybe he's doing something else that's really important, but we're sitting here waiting without purpose. Paul says no, that we're not just waiting without purpose, that God actually has a purpose that he is seeking to achieve in us while we wait, and that is to conform us, every single one of us, into the image of Jesus. That he wants to so shape us. Did you catch that where Paul says, in order that he, that's Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. God so wants to form us into the image of his son and wants to form us so fully into that image that we're going to look like siblings with him. He says, that's the purpose. There's a purpose. And everything that we experience, everything we go through, they're like hammers and chisel, a hammer and a chisel that seek to conform us. So I was thinking about this. I I thought of this verse in Hebrews 5 that I didn't want to read because it's confusing and hard, but I think it speaks very pointedly to this. So I'm going to try to step in and then step out rather quickly. But in Hebrews 5, the author of Hebrews talking about Jesus says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, this text doesn't mean that Jesus was previously disobedient and then God brought the hammer of suffering down in his life and finally Jesus said, okay, I will obey you. Jesus was perfect in his obedience to the Father. What this means, though, is Jesus didn't, he didn't fully learn what obedience was until he actually had to walk this earth. He didn't understand fully what the obedience entailed. He didn't didn't live a fully obedient life until he actually stepped into the call that God had for him. It wasn't just a plan. It actually became a reality. It was through living in this confusing and falling world. It was through being tested. It was through in the garden of Gethsemane, crying out, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. It was there that Jesus learned the true cost of obedience. And in the same way for us, When we grow cynical, we think, Jesus' promised return, I don't see him coming, and life's really, really hard, and this is discouraging, and we grow bitter, and we grow frustrated, instead of seeing, no, God has a purpose. Just like if, if Jesus had to learn obedience through what he suffered, how much more will we have to learn? And we have to learn it in our day to day living. We can't just learn it in the abstract. You know, I love theology. I want us to be a church that is deeply rooted and true and right thinking about God and our world. That is why I do the job that I do and I cherish that job. Every week that is what I'm trying to do is help you think rightly about God 
in our world. I love theology, but all the theology and Bible knowledge in the world will not, in and of itself, conform you to the image of Christ. You can read every book you want to read. And I'm only talking to some of you. Some of you are like, good, because that's not my life anyway. Uh, But all of the reading in the world, it's only going to take you so far. The knowledge we have has to be put into the crucible of real life. And real life is confusing and it's complex and it's frustrating. Real life kind of steals away a lot of the easy answers we have if all we do is spend our days in books and in theory. So waiting well requires us to see God's purpose for our waiting to conform us, his promise in it that it's for our good. And then I would say lastly, the process of it. And all I want to say about the process is the process takes time. It's one of our mantras here. Growth takes time. Anything in this world, anything in your life that has real beauty and real weight, it took time to develop. You know, a couple of years ago for Christmas, I bought my kids one of those crystal growing kits. You guys know what I'm talking about, where you dissolve some stuff in water, and then you set it aside, and then as the water evaporates, the, the solution that was dissolved forms into these crystals. And I thought it was a great Christmas present, but it was a horrible Christmas present for little kids because you do a whole lot of activity for like 40 minutes, and then all you do is you put it on the shelf, and you let it wait, and you cannot touch it. Like if you touch it, you disturb the process. And so I told my kids, don't touch it. Next day I came down, and there's blue water crusted all over the counter. So we did it again, and I put it up on a shelf that I had to stretch to reach. Three days later, there was some red water crusted on the top of that shelf. I don't even know how they got up there. It's like we struggle so much with waiting. We want instant results. But things of beauty, things of wonder, things of consequence and glory take time to be formed and developed. And so it's trusting the process too. It's the purpose and the process. It's going to take time. And I would say... When you hold God's purpose, his promise, and the process of it all together, it can profoundly change how you view your life and your days. If we think our waiting is without purpose, it's easy to become obsessed with our circumstances. But if we grab hold of the promises and purposes that God has for us here, I would say the circumstances start to matter less. It's not that they don't matter. They matter. But the process matters more. What we're experiencing matters less to us than who we are becoming. Quick application. If you're, you're tracking with me, then you'll understand that, that, things, that we, things that maybe you right now are seeing as obstacles are really opportunities. Things that you're seeing right now as problems, they're really a possibility that maybe God is inviting you to step into. If you know everything is working together for your good, and the good is that you would be formed to the image of Jesus, then that means, and God's over it all. And I know some of you are going through some very difficult things, but everything is an opportunity, and there's possibility in everything. Trials, they force us to grow. They force us to ask, God, what are you up to? And so I wonder for you, what obstacles right now might be opportunities? What, what problems 
right now that you're facing might God be actually putting before you to stretch you and to grow you? So we groan in hope. We trust in God's purpose and process in our waiting. And then the last one is that we rest in God's keeping. And here's where we get to two verses I skipped over earlier where Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now these verses are classic Paul. They are confusing uh, a little bit, and they are richer and deeper than I think we can fully appreciate or comprehend. And there's a lot of questions about the grammar here and, and who exactly is doing what and which word does this go to, which person. I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. What Paul is saying here, the big point is that the Spirit prays for us. I don't know what vision you have of the Holy Spirit, but do you have a vision of him and an understanding of him praying for you? Paul's saying as you wait and as it's hard and as you're waiting with hope and patience, don't ever forget that the Spirit's praying for you. He says when you don't know how to pray as you ought. A lot of times we know what to pray for. A lot of times we don't. Do I say yes or do I say no to this? Do I turn left? Do I turn right? You know, in the face of trials, do I pray that God would deliver me from these or that he would give me wisdom in the midst of them? In the face of suffering, do I pray that God would grant relief or endurance? You follow Jesus long enough, there's a lot of times you get to this place where you're like, I don't even know what to pray for right now. And so I pray, your will be done. That's all I figure that's a safe one. You know, I don't know, your will be done. Well, Paul, he says, you don't have to know. This verse frees us from thinking we have to know the will of God in every situation and circumstance. We have his word, we have his community, yes, but life's still confusing and his will is often confusing And we don't need to add to that confusion the guilt of feeling like we don't fully know the will of God. Because even when we struggle to see God's will, even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit prays for us. He steps in. I think there's another level to this. uh, That there are times we pray for wrong things. You know, anyone remember Garth Brooks' unanswered prayers? Uh, It's like we pray for things that we look back five years, ten years later, and we're saying that was a dumb thing to pray for, and God was so gracious and kind to not answer that prayer. Well, I think that's some of what Paul's getting at here. This is a bit speculative, I'll admit, but when Paul says when we don't know how to pray as we ought, I think in every, every prayer, or most of our prayers, there is the object, the thing that we want, and then there is the holy longing beyond that thing and behind that thing and at the bottom of that thing. And so we might be praying for this thing. You know, I think in the song, like, the high school boy wants to stay with the girl and get married to her and know her forever. Like, we might pray for the girl, but there's a deeper longing, companionship, love, family. And I think the Spirit, what he does is, I don't know, this is speculative, I'll admit, but I think what, what Paul's saying here is we pray and we put these, these wants before God, 
And, and the Holy Spirit's like, that's not what they really want. What they really want is this. They think they're going to find that here, but they're not. And so I'm going to step in and tell you. I mean, it's deep end theology. But Paul's writing to encourage us. He's writing to encourage us that as we wait, God is not at a distance watching our every move, judging our every decision, ready to pounce. He totally blew that one. This promise means that God is not watching us. It means that God understands us. And even when our prayers are imperfect or misdirected, they're not wasted. God uses them. See, resting in God's keeping, it's not a call to be lethargic or apathetic in our relationship with God. It's not a call to say, well, the Spirit prays for me, so I don't need to pray. Rather, this promise, it should encourage us to live wholeheartedly and to pray somewhat without filters. Because you know it's going to pass the editing board of the Holy Spirit before it gets to the Lord. And it should give you freedom to, as Lamentations 2 says, to pour out your heart like water before the living God. For me, for years, I struggled. My first struggle with prayer is I didn't know what to pray, and I was afraid I was saying the wrong things, especially in public. I hated praying in public because I was afraid I was going to say something wrong. As I got older, my struggle with prayer differed. It was, well, Lord, you know better than me, so I'm not going to, how dare I tell you? how you should run the world. This verse sets you free from both of those things. It says, no, put your desires before God in the spirit. He will intercede on your behalf. And he will transform your imperfect prayers into perfect pleas before the Father. And it's the Father who keeps us. This passage ends with Paul saying, it's a, it's a very famous verse. He says, those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And there's so much theology in those verses that we're not going to get into. But Paul's great comfort there is, God began this good work in you, and he's going to carry it on to completion. And so resting in God's keeping means pouring out your heart like water, knowing the Spirit intercedes, and it also means Resting in the fact that God has got you. That he sacrificed his son to redeem you. And you don't need to live anxious or afraid or worried. Because God began the work. And God always sees through what he starts. And so you can go to him as you are. And it's with that in mind that we come to the Lord's table. We're reminded the purchase that Jesus Christ purchased our salvation, purchased our adoption through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. Communion's a time where we remember his great sacrifice and we remember our great security, the great security we have before the Father through Jesus' death, being held by the Spirit. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you, communion's a time where we can confess our sins there are sins that you haven't confessed that are lingering in your life. Communion's a time where we lay those out before the Lord. And we plead for his mercy, his grace, and his help. Others of you, you haven't prayed in a very long time, and I pray that these words would encourage you and embolden you to just say what you got, pray what you got. If it's anger, if it's frustration, 
pour out your heart like water. And others of you, you do not have a hope in Christ's return. That's not where your hope is yet. And I pray that you will trust in him. He has promised to set us free. And it's in that hope that we sing, we worship, we take the supper, and that we pray. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.